And as they head their way, you can turn with me to Matthew. We're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2. And so we're looking at the story of the wise men. So I hope that doesn't disorient anyone because it's not Christmas, but we're talking about the wise men. So sometimes you can be disoriented. It's always fun, like, when I see some of the kids, like, I'll see them out at, like, Walmart, and they'll look, and they'll, they'll be disoriented because they're like, wait, what are you doing here? Or, uh, you know, your kids can feel that way when they see, like, their teacher somewhere else, not at school. It can uh, throw them for a loop. So don't be thrown for a loop. We're talking about the wise men, but it's not wise men, but it's not Christmas. And we're going through the Gospel of Matthew, and Matthew is a training manual. It's a, it's a manual for life for discipleship, for ministry. It's meant to teach us what it means to be faithful followers of Christ, to follow, follow him well, to live well. And Matthew's brilliant in the way he teaches. He uses both direct and indirect instruction. So very kind of clear propositional instruction where he's telling you, this is what I want you to do. And then there's also stories and narratives and images where he's trying to teach you. It's all meant to teach, to train, to instruct, but uses different methods. And what we'll see in chapters 1 through 4, he's laying the foundation for what it means to um, really live life well. What's life all about? Uh, what's the plot line for it? Chapter 1 tells you the plot line of history and then the three main characters. There's three main characters, and it's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The Father's overseeing history, orchestrating it to bring about his kingdom. The Son comes to, to um, bear and pay the penalty uh, of the sins for his people, to redeem a people. And then the Spirit comes to bring the life of the Son into, to incarnate that life in the world. And then chapter, so chapter 1 tells you what is life all about. It's knowing this threefold God. And then chapter two is going to tell you, all right, well, how do you know him? What gifts has he given to us so that we can actually know him? How can he be found? So in one sense, chapter one is like the doctrine of God. Chapter two is the doctrine of scripture or revelation. How can he be known? And what we're going to see in this first part of the chapter is that God gives us two gifts so that we can come to know him. He gives us natural revelation where the world is teaching us things about him. And then he gives us special revelation where his word is teaching us things about him. So let's pick up chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it arose, and we have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And then after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it arose before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star... They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary and his mother, and they fell down, and they worshipped him. 
And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned, warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So what I want to see this morning is that there's two gifts that God gives to us for us to know him. The gift of what we call kind of natural revelation and special revelation. And the gifts, and we can see in the two characters that we'll focus on is the wise men and then the chief priest and the scribes. And uh, you see the wise men, and what we see with them is the wise men have this desire, but they need more direction. So they want to worship, they want to get to the Christ, they have a desire, but what they need is more direction. And then with the chief priests and the scribes, they actually have the answers, they know where he is, but they don't have any affection, they don't go there. So we're going to look at those two things, and that's going to help frame how we make sense of the two ways that God gives us to know him. So let's think first about the wise men. They have the desire, but not the direction. You see them in verse 1 and 2. That when Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, the days of Herod the king, that these wise men from the east, they come to Jerusalem. They come seeking him. And notice what they say. We saw his star rise in the east, and we've come to worship him. The king of the Jews has been born, and we're, we're coming. We want to worship him. And for us, the, what I want you to see this morning is the wise men are actually a, a brilliant model of how you should read and understand the world, the gift of natural or general revelation, what you see in the world. See, they have their eyes open in such a way where they're looking out in the world and it's pointing them where they desire to worship. So let's think of the wise men. Well, who are they? So the word, the, the magi, you know, magi, that's similar to a word you would know, magi, and just put a C on the end, magic, magic. These were, we would call them magicians, but now, one of the problems we have with the Bible is we often kind of disconnect ourselves or we think, all right, these ancient people were so primitive, they have magicians. You know, we, we don't believe in magic now, which is kind of an ironic thing for, like, us to say, seeing how the largest employer in our state is a magic kingdom. But we don't believe in magic. We have scientists. We're rational. We're scientists. And uh, actually, I'd never really made this connection before, but this week studying the Magi, I realized not only do we not have, not only do we not have magicians now, we actually probably have more magicians than ever at any point in all of history. So see if, kind of think about, all right, what they do, and then don't use those words and see if you can kind of make connections to how you know, what people do now. So they had two, so they had two primary tasks, the, the magi, and then one primary tool. So their two tasks were astronomy and astrology. So they were uh, astronomers. And so their kind of core conviction was that the, the microcosm of humanity, so who we are, humans are, is a symbolic reflection of the relationship to the, to the heavenly bodies. So the, uh, the astronomers would study the laws of nature and the heavenly bodies and the world, and then they would then deduce from the laws of the world to kind of laws of how we should live and act. So the astronomers studied how life was, and then as uh, astrologers, they would say, all right, well, what does that mean for my life? How then should we live? And so what's interesting, and their primary tool, their, their tools, their magic, their tool was called, in Greek, techne. Techne, that was their tool. 
And that might sound familiar. We have two words, like technique, technology. So their job was to, in essence, look out at the world and discern how the world works and then backtrack to that and say, all right, this is how you can live well in the light of how the world works. And we have this techne that can help you do it. And it dawned on me this week as I was just thinking about it, we actually, all right, let's think about all of who could, could classify as modern-day magicians or astrologers. Basically, everyone who's in any type of behavioral science, so any soft science, would be that same idea. We're looking out. This is how the world works. We're going to look and get uh, a mass, a, a broad sample of how the world works, and then we're going to deduce back from that your principles for how you live. So all like behavioral sciences, economic uh, sciences, organizational sciences, all research into cognitive-based um, um, biases. So anybody kind of along the lines of in the, in the stream of like Daniel Kahneman or if you read any like social psychology and economic psychology, that's all that stream. Anybody in the business world, that's kind of along the stream of like Jim Collins. So any of the kind of good to great, we've studied mass amounts of organizational businesses. This is how they run. This is how you can kind of thrive in that. So Ray Dalio, Charlie Munger, anybody who uses like we do evidence-based whatever. So we've collected all this data, we've looked, and then we've synthesized from this mass sample, these are things that you should be doing. So any kind of evidence-based data, anybody kind of in the big idea journalism world, so like Malcolm Gladwell, Adam Grant, Susan Cain, Daniel Pink, Carol Dwick, Simon Sinek, anybody in that kind of world, they're doing these type things. They're magicians in this Anybody who's kind of in the life hack world, so any life hacker. So here's how the world works, and then here's how you can manipulate it, hack it. So people I know like Tim Ferriss, Joe Rogan, Farnham Street, the Knowledge Project, things along that line. Anything kind of in the self-help world is this kind of world. Now, I'm not as familiar. All the things I've been naming are things that are kind of maybe a little more male-centric. I'm not as familiar with many of the female-centric self-help Writers, so that would be a research project. You could look and say, I wonder how that connects. You know, what's interesting is anything that's kind of personality archetypes, so any of the personality tests is kind of this kind of world. So whether Myers-Briggs, DISC, Enneagram, any of those that give archetypal kind of behavioral patterns, and then says this is how you fit in under that, that's this kind of world. In fact, they were, that was their original wheelhouse. They had the original 12 archetypal personality patterns called the, the zodiac, the, the horoscope. So how did you determine like, who you were? How were the stars aligned when you were born? And that determined your personality. So that's kind of that kind of world. Anytime you hear anyone who uses like terminology that says, because, we've, because of our evolutionary development... Then, therefore. So uses like evolutionary development to explain anything. That's kind of this, this kind of world. So this isn't a foreign world to us. This is a world we live in. These are the magicians, but they're the worldly wise who are trying to look out and say, this is how the world works. And uh, if your life is going to go well, you need to bring your life in line with this. And, of course, their primary tool was what were they called techne. That was their magic. And we get technique or technology. 
And so techniques, and so you have a range. You have good magicians and bad magicians. And the good magicians would give you techniques that say this is how the world is, and you must conform your life to it and go with the grain of it. And then the bad magicians would say this is how the world is, and I can teach you how to hack it. You can hack it. You can get around it. And you pay me this exorbitant amount of money, and I'll let you in on the secret. So good or bad. And then same with technology, good or bad. This is how the world is. It's given us certain limitations. And good technology can help you bring out the latent life in, in different situations. And then bad technology can help you try and overcome the limitations that you don't want to be bound by. So either good or bad. But what the wise men are, or they're a brilliant example of how the Lord wants us to open up our eyes and look out into the world and see how it has it been designed. How has it been structured? And then how can we live our life in accordance with that? So natural revelation in one sense is just a call to wisdom. The biblical word for that is to be wise, to see how the world has been been created. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to use general revelation to make them wiser. All good things, all good things. But then the problem with kind of natural revelation is we can only see, but we see smudgy. The vision is smudgy. There's just certain things we can't really see well. And then, as we'll see, they're an example of how you use natural revelation well because what has it motivated them to want to do? The ultimate goal is worship. So the whole question is, can you, do, you, do you use the world in such a way that leads you to worship? That's the whole goal. Kind of interesting, I heard Peter Kraft, who's a philosopher from Boston, Boston University, I was listening to him this week, and he made this side comment that the idea of a scientific atheist was unthinkable until about the last 50 years. So in the history of science, all you know, scientists like Newton, Kepler, Copernicus, they were all exalting and worshiping their God through their work. And even someone like Einstein believed that uh, the world was created, didn't know who, but like some deity had to create it. And it should lead you, understanding, looking at the world in such a way should lead you to worship. That's a good use of the natural revelation. It's meant to bring you to worship. So they're a model. They're people who they want to know. They want to grow. They want to understand. And look at the tremendous sacrifices they go through to actually get there. But what I find interesting is their ambitions kind of for understanding the world is not so they can hack it, so they can just be more successful or more productive or more influential. The whole goal, they have a higher purpose. Their eyes are lifted up higher than just self-exaltation and self-seeking. They want, they're searching for something, searching for someone. It's interesting, they're searching for someone and they don't even know his name. Because we think he's the king of the Jews, but they don't even know his name, but they're searching and so that's a good use of one of God's gifts, which is natural revelation. So kind of think about where you are in life. Um, for Christians, one of the advantages is God has given us the world, and he wants us to go through it with our eyes open, trying to understand it, trying to bring our life in line with its movements. Have you ever heard the phrase that some Christians are so heavenly-minded they're no earthly good? That's not true. 
you, you've actually never met a human being that was so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. So nobody actually fits in that category. But what people mean when they say that is, you know, there's well-meaning, good Christians who like love the Bible and love Jesus and love people. They're just really bad at life. They're just kind of heads in the clouds and they're kind of clueless. And actually what they need is just more worldly wisdom, need more general revelation. Or you might be the kind of person who loves natural revelation. You love um, productivity hacks and life hacker and love want to do and become better and do all of these things. You know, you have this desire to manage money well, to run a better business, to feel more productive, to feel healthier. All that's good things. Those are wonderful desires. But then learn the lesson from the wise men. What was their why? Or maybe learn the lesson from one of our modern day magicians. Start with why. What was their why? It was to worship. They wanted to bring their, their life and their treasures. They were, tr they were searching for Christ. And the goal was to worship. They had the right desire, but they just needed more direction on how they could fulfill that desire. See, the gift of natural revelation, it, it in essence can get you into the neighborhood. They followed it, and it got them into the right neighborhood, but they needed something more. They needed something that could get them to Jesus' house. And this is the second gift that he gives us. It's the gift of special revelation, the gift of his word, the gift that can then direct us to where he is. Notice in verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling all of the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. So notice he comes and he asks, all right, well, where, we heard these rumors that the, the king, the Messiah, the Christ has come. Well, where is he going to be born? And so they knew the right answers. This actually is a pretty remarkable um, synthesis of multiple texts and passages. So in one sense, they, they knew the right answers. But then the question is, why weren't they looking for him? Why weren't they seeking him? They should have, the wise men, when they came, it should have motivated them to say, what, has he been born? We didn't see. We've been blind. Yes, we know where he is. We will take you. We will show you. Let's, let's go. They knew the right answers but had no affection. And what this is a warning and should actually humble us. And scare us because it's possible to have your, it's possible to know scriptures in such a way where you know it, but you miss Christ. And that's what they, they did. They knew the answers, but didn't have any of the affection. They were so close, like distance wise, but so far away relationally. And you know what that's like to be. You can be very close in proximity to someone and be miles apart emotionally, relationally. And that's exactly where they were. They were so close, but they missed him, had the answers, but no affection. And what God gives is he gives the gift of special revelation. is isn't just so we can know certain answers, but it's to get us to Jesus, to take us there. And I find it fascinating. Look in verse 7 when he's, the Herod summons the wise men, and then he starts to send them on their place. They're actually seeking someone, and they don't know his name. And it's the gift of scriptures that are going to tell him his name, you know, who he is, 
This is the one you're actually seeking. This is the one your hearts are searching for. They're going to be restless until you find, they find him. And let us tell you what his name is and where he can be found. That's what the scriptures give us the gift of. And then they go and they start to seek, seek him. In verse 7 and then verse 8. Verse 8. And then he sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring word to me that I may come and worship him. And after, after listening to the king, they were on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it arose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshiped him. So it's interesting as you go through the chapter, you can just contrast the the joy and the gladness and the energy of the wise men versus the, the fear, the duplicity, the manipulation, the, the lying, the deceit. Now, next week, we'll look in how Herod follows up where he tries to uh, kill all the babies in Bethlehem to destroy this child. And you see almost like two different worlds, two different atmospheres, an atmosphere filled with manipulation and deceit and fear, and then ultimately murder, and then an atmosphere that's filled with joy and humility and light. It's kind of like, which atmosphere do you want to live in? Which world do you want uh, to be a part of? And so they come and notice all their, their joy and I know this first thing, kind of how do they get there? There's a progression. First, they're guided by the light of a star. So they see a light, and then they're guided by this light. And this actually was one of Martin Luther's favorite images that he would constantly remind and encourage pastors. He would tell you, you're preachers, preachers, you're, you're a star. You're not in the, like, you know, American Idol woohoo sense, but you're a star, and it's your job to be a light that points people to Jesus. So you're the light, so when they hear and look, they actually look through you to see him, and it brings them, the whole goal is to end with joy in his presence. So he'd say, be a star. And I started thinking about that. That's, that would be, uh, he probably couldn't have say, I wonder if he could say things like that now, if that would be, in if we'd be in danger of misinterpreting him. But then it's not just, in one sense, preachers that have the job to be the light, to point joy, people joyfully to Jesus. That's, uh, that's all the great calling of all of us, have this, uh, res this joy and responsibility to, to be the light, to be the star that points people to him. Sometimes I feel like my primary role in life is to flip off lights. So we live in a townhome that's three stories. And so sometimes after the morning mayhem of trying to get two kids to school and two kids just to come along, um, someone go back upstairs and, and kind of survey the damage. And it's a, it's, it's a marvel. It is, a, it is miraculous. It's magic. Every single light is on. Every one. I mean, you can even open up the closet, and there's like our hurricane survival kit, and even the lights in that somehow have been turned on. And so I just all day walk through our house just... And a couple nights ago this week... Um, 
Our three-year-old is kind of learning what it means to be able to sleep in a big boy bed and not get out of it every 12 seconds. And it, it was about 12 o'clock at night. We were trying to get ready for bed. We were, um, I run out of patience at 8.30 in the morning. Cynthia normally laughs. She can last till at least 9. <laughs> but it was 12, and uh, he kind of came into our room and started pulling, like pulling on my head and my ear, and he's, he's hungry, needs something to eat. And, and then really, I, he probably didn't eat dinner too well, and so kind of caved, and so, all right, well, I'm going to, Take you downstairs into the kitchen and pour some, some cereal. I want you to eat it. I have other things I have to do. I'm going to do this. And then when you finish, put the bowl in the sink, turn off the lights, and come back up and, you, and get in your bed. And then start doing other things. Even forgot he was down there. And then the next thing I know, he's kind of come back into the room. And it's like, what? Why are you here? Why, why, what are you doing? And he's kind of pulling. And he's trying to tell me, like, come and see. Like, come. Come. There's darkness. Come to the darkness. And I was getting frustrated because hey, this is all. He's not scared. He's just manipulating us. He wants food. Now he's scared of the dark. And then Cynthia kind of gently put her hand. He said, I think he's trying to tell you that he obeyed. And I looked and I said, are you telling me that you turned off the lights? And he lit up. He's like, yes. He said, come see. Come see the darkness. <laughs> so holding on the hand, we start walking down the steps, and then we get down to look at the kitchen. He goes, ta-da, and it's pitch black. <laughs> the light is off. I said, way to go, buddy. So proud of you for turning off that light. And as we made it back up the stairs, I was like, that's kind of like what Matthew is calling us to be, just in the reverse. So not come and see the darkness, but come and see the light. To be the light, look at the light. Look, do you see? Can you see? Look at the light and see the one that points. It's the light that points you so you can see him. Because, you know, if you think about it, light, light is kind of underappreciated when you have it. So, for example, if I asked you, like, let's, let's play the game of I Spy, um, what's something you see? Like, right now, you could start naming things that you see. Like, hey, I see you, your big head. I see that podium. I see that screen. I see these things. But very few of us would say, I see light. But do you realize you wouldn't see anything if it wasn't for the light? It's actually what enables you to see everything else. And that's, the, that's what the star does. First, there must be a star that's going to point you so you can see. And that's what Scripture is. Scripture is our star. It's our light that, uh, that enlightens us so we can see. See the world as it is. See Christ as he is. And that's the first step. But then notice the progression as the wise men go in this remarkable act of worship. They, they come into, so first they rejoiced. The light caused them to rejoice with great joy. Verse 11, then they enter into the house. The goal of the light is to bring you to Jesus' house. You can't find him unless you come to where he is. Where is he? You've got to come to his house. And then they see the child. The whole goal of the light is to reveal to you so you can see the child and Mary and his mother. And then they fall down. And then they worship him. And then they open up their treasures and they offer him gifts. Now, try and picture in your mind, use your imagination. Can you imagine this scene? I mean, these wise men, we don't know if there are three. They get three because there are three gifts. We don't know how many there were. They were probably from Persia. Would have been upper level, in essence, royalty, working in the royal court. And 
they're coming to this, in essence, poor, podunk, peasant town, this one-room dirt hut, and here they come in, and they see this child, and then they fall down and worship. It's a remarkable act of faith. You know, this presence of this infant, you know, they actually hadn't seen any of the miracles. They hadn't heard any of the sermons. They hadn't seen the resurrected hands that were nail-pierced but were still alive. They didn't see any of that. And yet they had the faith to fall down and worship. You know, it makes me wonder, what, would, what type of motivation would I need to travel halfway across the world to worship someone else's kid? You know, we'll go through great lengths for things for our kids, but often we don't care too much for other people's kids. And then here they are going all the way across the world to worship this child. It's a remarkable act of faith in the movement. As they come in the house, they fall down, and then they give. They give generously. That's more, it, it comes this overflow where they've brought treasures, and they want to share with the child. One of the key themes we'll see running through Matthew uses this worship ten times. To, they, they worship him. He is to be worshipped. Two key places here and at the end after the resurrection. But the end goal is worship. And that's the end goal of all revelation. God gives us the gift of natural revelation because he wants it to lead to worship. He gives us the gift of special revelation, his word, the light of his word, because he wants to lead us to his son where we worship. And then they lay down three, three gifts. You know, it's kind of interesting to think about the gifts. They have symbolic value, you know, gold to the king. Frankincense is incense for the priest. And then myrrh is what you would anoint a dead body with. So it's like, hmm. But then also just a practical value. You know, as you progress in the story, Joseph is about to have to get out of town really quick. And he's, they're about to be on the run in Egypt for three, four, maybe five years. And that gold's going to come in really handy. I imagine he doesn't have a whole lot of it stashed away. And so they bring these gifts and not only symbolic treasures that they give to him, but also practical. Uh, they play a key significant part in the advancement of the story in this provision and protection of the son. And so here we, um, so here we see the goal of both is to, to worship. And one of the things this is doing is it's uh, setting the stage for how we can encounter him and how we can worship him. But then there's also a, a subtle foreshadowing. Because on the one hand, if, uh, if you just have the first part of Matthew and you have your mind saturated in the Old Testament scriptures, you think, all right, I know the story. It's actually, it's playing out like it's supposed to. Like the early church, their great commission text was Isaiah chapter 2, where it talks about all the kings of the earth are going to stream to Jerusalem, and they're going to joyfully lay down their treasures at the feet of Israel's king. And you think, it's happening. It's playing out. But then one of the questions is, all right, how does the story progress? See, here in chapter 2, these Gentiles come from afar, and they say, we've come to worship the king of the Jews. And you know the next time he'll be called the king of the Jews? It'll be by another Gentile at the end of the story when he'll write the king of the Jews in Greek, Hebrew, and Latin and nail it over his cross. So we think at the beginning that here it is, the whole world streaming to him, and they're just going to fall at his feet. But before he actually receives the full glory that he deserves, he has to travel the path and the way of the cross. Because what the wise men didn't have, they had desire but no direction. 
And what the scribes had is they had um, the answers but no affection. It's actually the cross that's going to give us uh, both of those. The cross will tell us the direction. This is the path. This is the way. The way to find your life is to lose it. The way to power is through weakness. The way to be first is to be last. The way to riches is through selfless giving. The way to life is you pass through death. This is the way. But then also it's going to tell you this is the way to affection. If you want to have your affection stirred, you don't just know the answers. You encounter Christ on the cross. If your heart's cold, if it's hard, this is where you have to look. If you want to get it captured by him and his grace, you have to see him here. It's what thaws our hard hearts, our cold hearts. And what we see as we look to the cross, we see that God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that we can come and we can joyfully worship at his feet. And this is going to be the path that's going to get us to that place. See, chapter 1 tells us that all of history, chapter 2 tells us that all of nature is under God's control, and the whole goal is to bring us to a place of worship. And part of the irony is we see these great reversals, because now the ones, the outsiders are the ones who get brought in, and the insiders are the ones who stay out. And then there's this last little bit, the last little word, and they departed to their own country by another way. And I'm so tempted to want to read more into that sentence than maybe it can put more weight on it than it can possibly bear. Maybe it's just telling you they went another route home, recalculating. But maybe there's something to that word, they went another route way. That they have come and they have fallen at the feet of Christ the King, and now they're never going to be the same. They walk a different way. You know, I wonder if that transformed the way they did their astronomy, the way they looked at the heavens. Did they now see things different? I wonder what their life was like as they went back to their job in the highest levels of the Persian palace. I wonder, what is the way that they now walked. But after encountering him, they walk a new way. And that's the goal. After we encounter him through his wor- the world and through his word, we worship and then we walk a new way. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its truth. And we thank you for the light that you set up so that it will shine and that we can see Jesus. And so I pray, first of all, that for everyone who's come in this room, And they are in a situation where they sympathize or can identify with the wise men and they know they're searching. They're like, we're trying to find him. We've come to his house. We're seeking. We we want to see him. I pray that you would reveal yourself to him. Let them see him in your people. Let them see him in your worship. Let them see him in your word. So we pray for anyone who's come searching. And I pray for any of us who've come and we know that we're like the, the scribes who know all the answers but have no affection. Help us not to be that way. Help us to have hearts that are sensitive and soft. And we thank you for the gift of your truth. And ask that you help us to be those kind of people, to be light in the dark world and shine and help people walk a new way. Know this we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen.